Welcome to TheHorse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of TheHorse.com. Tonight's Ask the Vet Live is Common Sense Equine Nutrition, and it is brought to you by the Horse's Nutrition Newsletter. You can register at TheHorse.com and sign up to receive the nutrition letter, which comes out every week. Uh, We are joined this evening by Dr. Claire uh, Tunis. Dr. Tunis, are uh, are you there? I am. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's start out to having you tell us a little bit about your interest and your experience in equine nutrition. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And um, I'm a little unusual in that I'm an independent equine nutritionist. I have my own consulting company called Summit Equine Nutrition. I provide consulting services to owners, veterinarians, sometimes feed companies, but I'm not obligated to any particular feed or supplement company. And I just help people figure out what the right thing to feed their horses based on their individual needs and individual situations. Um, I did my bachelor's at the Edinburgh University. I'm uh, English uh, by birth and ended up in California to do a master's and a PhD. Got my master's in animal science, my PhD in nutrition. And I started Summit Equine Nutrition about seven years ago. And it's kind of grown from being a part-time venture into a full-time venture. And uh, we have a lot of fun, and I work with all kinds of horses, everything from I have miniature donkeys as clients. I have a horse right now competing at the World Equestrian Games. So I really have the gamut of clients. And Dr. Tunis, I have to say this is a topic that um, we got a ton of questions about. Um, Our audience is really interested in it. I'm interested in it, and I can understand why your business has grown because I stand in the feed store staring at these buckets and bags, and I'm never quite sure if I'm doing the right things for my horses. Um, So tonight we're going to answer a bunch of those questions that were sent in ahead of time by our audience. We have an hour to do that. Uh, We'll also be taking questions from the live audience. If you are listening right now live, you can go ahead and enter your question in the web browser in front of you and send it in. Uh, Our managing editor of the horse is reading those as they come through and sending them on to me uh, for possible use during the hour. So, Dr. Tunis, are you ready to get started? I am. (laughs) Okay, we're going to start with our first question, and it's from Patty in California. And Patty wants to know, why do you need to add supplements for your horses if you're feeding good quality hay? And that's a great question, Patty, and it's one that I get asked quite frequently. Um, Hay, and especially if you're in California, we don't have a lot of grazing. Most of our horses in California and the western states are eating a lot of hay. And good quality hay can definitely provide adequate calories, most of the protein that they need, although it may not be the best quality protein, depending on the type of hay. And you're going to get most of your macrominerals met, your calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. But what you may not get from your hay alone is enough trace minerals, in particular zinc and copper, because our soils don't contain a lot of those trace minerals. Um, Hay, because it is sort of baked in the sun, basically, loses a lot of its vitamin E content. So whereas there's a lot of vitamin E in good quality fresh pasture, there's not a lot of vitamin E in hay. So that's something else we need to think about adding. We may also want to consider adding some omega fatty acid sources because they are also not heat stable and don't do, uh, they're not as plentiful in hay as they would be in grass. Um, so there's definitely a need to kind of fill the gaps that are not being provided by your, by your hay. And so your, your horse can look very good on the hay because they've got enough calories to maintain weight and protein to kind of maintain the major muscle development. But they may actually be 
uh, deficient in a number of other essential nutrients. And so I've been purchasing my hay from the same hay guy from the same field basically for the last seven years. But before that, I hadn't found a regular source. And so when I would change hay sources, the health of my horses would change. How can we as horse owners know if we're getting a good quality hay or if that hay is providing our horses the nutrition that they need? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the best way to do it, obviously, is to get your hay tested by an analytical lab that can actually tell you what the nutritional breakdown is. But if you're not buying large quantities of hay, that may not be worth doing because it's going to differ with every cutting, every field, every type of hay. Um, so that can make it kind of difficult. Um, you might find um, some sort of average values for kind of hay that are grown in your area that might help you out. Um, or looking at your hay, obviously there are visual assessments you can make of your hay, so making sure that it's, you know, the color is good, that it's sort of a bright, uh, attractive green color, that it smells good when you put your nose in it, you don't kind of come out coughing, because the horse is going to come out coughing too, um, making sure that um, uh, so the, the relative proportion of leaves to stems is an indicator of the sort of nutritional value, because as, as the grass plants or alfalfa plants grow, the relative proportion of stem increases. So the stem, more mature a hay is when it's cut, the stemmier it is. And there's more nutrition, more um, the protein content is higher um, in the leaf portion than the stem portion. So the leafier it is, um, so the more nutritional value it's going to have. Now, you know, whether you want a lot of nutritional value in your hay, it's going to depend on the kind of horse you're feeding. If you have a super easy keeper horse, you might want something that's a little stemmier and... Um, Clean and, you know, certainly clean and um, good quality in that sense, but perhaps a little lower nutritional value. So, um, you know, again, knowing the type of horse you're feeding, you know, looking at your hay, you can somewhat make a choice as to whether or not it might be a good hay for your particular horse. But without testing it, you really don't know what's in it. And test, I should add that testing is not that expensive. I have people who are shocked when I say that you can get a full nutritional analysis for about $30. Oh, really? Only $30? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to write that down. The, compared to the cost of your hay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's a small fraction of what I pay per ton of hay. Um, right. Our next question is from Jazzy in New York, and it comes from our live audience. And Jazzy wants to know, which type of grain do you recommend most, and how do you determine how much grain to give your horse? Wow, that's a good one. So I think to start with, we have to clarify what we're talking about when we're talking about grain, because grain means a lot of different things to different people. So, you know, traditionally... When you think grains, I think of, you know, corn, barley. I mean, those are grains. But I think a lot of horse owners, um, you know, call anything they put in a bucket grain. So, you know, alfalfa pellets and grass hay pellets can get called grains, but they're traditionally they're not a grain. So, um, so have, first of all, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about grains? It can really be anything um, that we put in the bucket. But um, as to whether a horse needs green, I mean, everything that comes down to can you maintain your horse's body condition with forage alone? Um, and that means that you need to be condition scoring your horse on a regular basis, assessing their body condition. Um, and if a horse can maintain their body condition just on forage, be that pasture or hay or other sorts of forages, then an additional calorie source is probably not necessary now. As I mentioned in the first question, we are going to be needing to add some trace minerals and vitamins and, you know, some other things that are not in the hay. But whether we need to do that in a grain, be that um, or not, um, is another matter. And tr I should add that tr traditional grains, kind of unfortified grains like oats, like um, 
something like just alfalfa pellets or um, beet pulp. They don't have any added minerals or vitamins, so they're not going to help you with that, those missing pieces of your hay. They'll add extra calories, but they're not going to improve your mineral profile very much. Um, so you would be looking for a fortified uh, feed, and whether that's a higher calorie type performance feed um, or a lower calorie, highly fortified ration balancer, um, you know, it's going to depend, again, on whether you need those calories to help that horse maintain its weight. Our next question is from Timmy in Castle Rock, Colorado. And Timmy wants to know, are whole oats plus vitamin supplements better for horses than manufactured or processed feeds? Oh, that ties in really nicely to the last question. Um, so having just said that, you know, you're a whole oats, or you're, yeah, they don't have any, anything other than what that comes when they're grown, so they don't have any added fortification or anything. Um, if you're going to feed your oats in addition to your forage, you're still going to be needing um, that additional sort of minerals and vitamins. So, yes, you would need some kind of vitamin mineral supplement. And that's certainly um, a viable way to go. If your horse needs extra calories, you could feed them whole oats. Are whole oats the best choice for each individual horse? That's going to depend on the individual horse, what they do for a living. Um, the calories in oats are coming from starch, and starch must be digested and absorbed in the small intestine. If starch reaches the hindgut, it's going to cause hindgut disruption, which can lead to colic and uh, digestive disturbances. Um, certainly the advantages to oats are they're cheap. They're very palatable. Um, whole oats still has the beta-glucans in them, which have been shown to be beneficial to um, gastrointestinal health in some cases. Um, but again, they are about 45% starch, which is fairly high in starch. Now, compared to other grains like corn and barley, that starch is more digestible, so it's seem to be a little safer. When we feed corn and barley, they must be have gone through some kind of heat treatment, which is why they're nearly always steam flaked or extruded or had some other heating processing done to them, because otherwise that starch isn't very digestible and it will end up in the hindgut and cause disruption. So of the grains, oats are perhaps the safest of the grains to feed. Um, but again, the disadvantages are they're not fortified um, and there is that risk of hindgut disruption. Um, if you're feeding, you know, high starch feeds like oats, it's important that you keep your starch intake at less than two grams per kilogram body weight per meal. So what does that mean in the real world? It means that if you've got an 1,100 pound horse, you should not feed more than four and a half pounds of oats at any one meal, because otherwise you run the risk of overwhelming the small intestine's ability to digest and remove that starch, um, and you run the risk of hindgut disruption. So I don't, you know. You can feed oats. There's certainly a lot of people who use the traditional horse feed, feeding oats. You can feed it with a rational one of these ration balances we've mentioned before, these highly fortified, low-serving size type commercial feeds. They're going to provide everything that's not in your hay and not in your oats. Um, and oats will certainly give you a calorie source. Um, and if you have a horse that's doing a lot of anaerobic fast work, then certainly starch in the diet is necessary because you can only burn glucose as an energy source when you're working a horse anaerobically. So, for example, a barrel racer um, would be a horse that works anaerobically. But for most of our horses who have a fairly relaxed life, um, don't work anaerobically, our dressage horses, our trail horses, our pleasure horses, um, they probably don't really need a lot of starch in their diet. And using energy sources like beet pulp and fat, um, beet pulp's a highly fermentable fiber that's fermented in the hindgut, uh, probably going to be a safer, more appropriate choice. And so I, I've heard you mention some weights, uh, feeds mm -hmm. and pounds. Uh, we often in the barn talk about uh, feeds in 
in the amounts of coffee cans or scoops, yeah. two scoops of this and another scoop of that and a coffee can of this or half a coffee can. Uh, how do the pounds translate to those measurement tools? Well, that's tricky. Um, for us, it's actually um, kind of easy because a one-pound coffee can does actually hold one pound of oats. Um, so it's a straight-across measure. But that's not the case for other things because other feeds have different densities. So, for example, think about your one-pound coffee can and now fill it with wheat bran. A wheat bran is so fluffy and so light that there's you know, no way that a one-pound can of you know, coffee can holds one pound of wheat bran. It holds far less which is why we really need to be feeding by weight and not volume because the density of our feeds is different and what you can fit in a, in a volumetric measure of one feed is not going to be the same of another, of another feed. Um, some of the feed companies are uh, very kind and have provided for their feed um, kind of quart pound conversion because a lot of the scoops that we use are you know, two, three quart scoops. And so they do provide on their website sometimes a conversion for their most popular feeds from quarts to pounds. Um, but I really recommend that people weigh their feed. Um, and then I get eyes rolling. I don't weigh my feed every day. That's, you know, it's going to take too much time. So you don't have to weigh it every day. Uh, what I recommend is you get your coffee can or your plastic yogurt container and you get a scale and you can steal the kitchen scale out of your um, out of your kitchen, I got given a lovely kitchen scale for my wedding uh, a number of years ago, and I've used that to weigh feed on. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I would add that, or you could just bring the feed in the house and weigh it on the kitchen counter, which is what I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, right? so, um, so you get your nice, and I like cylinders. Um, the scoops are great, but they're often not cylinders, so then it becomes, well, did I heap it this much, or did I heap it that much? So find a cylinder. Weigh in your feed until you get to a pound, and with a Sharpie marker pen, mark on the um, container uh, one pound and then the name of the feed. Um, and then that way, the next time you feed, you don't have to weigh it. You just fill it to that line, and you know it's a pound. Um, and some of the feed companies have even gone as far as, I've, I know several feed companies that actually make a scoop where they've already done that for you, and they'll put, they, you know, it's pre-measured like that, but... You know, you don't have to buy one of those. You can just make it yourself at home if you want to. And it saves a lot of time. And no matter who feeds your horse, you know it's getting the right amount. We have a question from our live audience. Phil in Atlanta wants to know, what is the standard What is standard feed digestibility? I have had one feed tested, and it had 24% digestibility. Is that adequate to maintain body condition? Wow, that's a good question. Well, different feeds have different digestibility. Um, so I don't know that I've ever seen a digestive feed digestibility on, on an analysis sheet. I'm trying to think, um, thinking back to hay analysis sheets I've seen. I don't think I've seen a digestibility, um, on a, on a hay analysis sheet for like the hay that I have tested. Um, but certainly, you know, there are different digestibilities and like minerals. I was looking at the minerals earlier today. You know, they have a digestive, so the minerals I was looking at, they had a digestibility of 60, 70%. Other, you know, some forages can have a fairly low digestibility, might be, you know, 40, 50%. Some grains are going to have a much higher, you know, they can run the 60, 70%. So it's kind of all over the board. It depends on what the feed is. Okay. Our next question is from Carolyn in Michigan. And Carolyn has a question about Himalayan salt blocks. She says they're supposed to supply 
trace minerals as well as salt. They can come from many places, usually Pakistan, and so are not the same across the board. Is there any way of knowing what's actually in them? And can any of those trace elements become excessive or even toxic to our horses? Have you ever seen any issues with the Himalayan salt blocks? Yeah, the Himalayan salt blocks are very popular, and um, I've never really seen an analysis posted next to a Himalayan salt block that's for sale, but certainly if you go online and Google Himalayan salt analysis, you can get, you know, a bunch of analyses that you can dig up online, and they're all slightly different, as Carolyn says, depending on probably where they were mined from, um, but, you know, they're fairly similar amounts, and I hate to say it, but the amounts are so tiny that A, they're not really going to do anything to really, you know, aid your horse in the trace minerals that he needs, and B, because they're so tiny, they're probably not going to have any negative detrimental effect either. Um, so when folks rely on, you know, the mineral, trace minerals coming from a trace mineral salt block or a trace mineral Himalayan salt block, it's not going to make up for those deficiencies that we talked about earlier um, in the hay. And part of that is because, you know, horses go to a salt block because they have a, a sodium craving. Sodium is the only mineral that we know of that they actually have a known craving for, and they will go in search of salt. Um, and while a lot of horses don't use salt blocks reliably, uh, when they do use a salt block, they're doing it to um, get the sodium that they need. And once they feel like they've met their sodium requirement, they're going to walk away from that salt block. So the question is, well, how much of the other trace minerals did they take in? It's completely dependent on how much sodium they felt like they needed and has nothing to do with how much zinc they need or how much copper they need or other minerals that they need. So personally, I don't rely on mineral salt blocks to provide the missing minerals uh, in a diet. Um, certainly, every horse should have access to a salt block because, as I said, sodium is a vital nutrient that they do have a craving for. Um, and I do know, you know, while I don't think personally that the extra money that's involved with buying a Himalayan salt block is... Um, really necessary. I do know that there are horses that, given their preference, will use a Himalayan block and they won't use anything else. And so if that's what your horse likes, perfect, buy a Himalayan salt block. Um, but um, if your horse is not going through a salt block on a regular basis, I, I tell my clients that they need to be adding salt to their horse's ration every day at a rate of one tablespoon per 500-pound body weight. And for an 1,100-pound horse, that's two tablespoons of salt a day. And that's going to provide that horse with about 10 grams of sodium, which is their maintenance sodium requirement per the NRC guidelines. Um, and that would be equivalent to about a two-pound block of salt a month. That's a lot of salt. Most people are pretty shocked when they hear that. <laughs> Um, we have we have a salt-related question that's come in from our live audience. Yeah. Um, Beth is in Pennsylvania, and Beth is actually asking a question that I was going to ask you next. Um, she wants to know, are red uh, mineral blocks better than the white salt blocks? I don't think so. I mean, they have minerals, added minerals in them. I mean, that's kind of why they're red. They're, they're not just sodium chloride. They've got some other minerals in them. And so, yeah, they're going to get some... Um, some, you know, they'll, have a, they'll get a little bit of zinc and copper. I think when I looked at an analysis for a red mineral salt block and I said, okay, so let's say that the horse consumes an ounce of salt a day, which would be um, what would, you know, fulfill its sodium requirement. Um, and let's say it, it consumed an ounce off of a block. I figured out that they were getting less than one milligram of zinc and less than one milligram of copper. So um, it's really not even making a dent in the, in the requirement every day. Um, and I think they tend to be more expensive. So, you know, 
I, I'm not sure I would spend the extra money. I think I'd probably just go for the white one. Okay. We have a question that came from Carla via Facebook, and she wants to know about hay nets that are slow feeders. She says, a hay net with small holes really, really slowed my horse's forage consumption when he was on stall rest, but isn't it better for horses in general to eat off the ground? So she's asking about how it's good for our horses to eat slowly, but then the hay nets that allow them to do that might hang to be safe up above the horse's shoulder where the horse has to reach up. Do you have any thoughts on how we feed our horses? Yeah, I do. I have to admit to being a pretty big fan of slow feeders um, for a number of reasons, which, as she, as a caller pointed out, is that it slows them down considerably. So horses in their natural setting would eat for, you know, 16, 17, 18 hours a day, um, and they are designed to do that. They're designed to eat small amounts of forage constantly, and as a result, they secrete stomach acid constantly, they secrete bile constantly, um, and what we do, most of us, um, especially those of us that don't have the luxury of pasture, is that we meal feed them. And so we feed them a flake or two of hay in the morning and a flake or two of hay at night. If they're lucky, they might get some lunch. And most horses are done with that flake in probably less than an hour, which means that they're standing around for long periods of time without forage. And when they chew, they secrete saliva. And that saliva contains a large amount of bicarbonate, which acts as a buffer. And so it naturally buffers the stomach acid. So it's this beautiful system where they secrete stomach acid constantly, and if they're eating constantly, they're constantly buffering that stomach acid too. Um, when we meal feed them, and when we feed high forage diets and constant forage, we're maintaining a mat of forage on the surface of the gastric acid in the stomach, which helps prevent the stomach from splashing up and coming into contact with the upper portion of the stomach, um, and the upper portion of the stomach is where we tend to find most of our gastric ulcers, and Stomach acid is secreted from the lower portion of the stomach, and because it secretes stomach acid, it also secretes something called mucin, which coats those cells and protects them from the acid, so it has a built-in protection mechanism. The upper cells, because they don't secrete stomach acid, don't have any protective mechanism, so they rely on a, on a fight, you know, forage mat and levels of forage and natural buffering systems to prevent that acid splashing up and coming into contact and keeping the pH down and reducing our ulcer risk. So anything we can do that makes horses chew for longer uh, is beneficial to their gastrointestinal health. Um, and I think it's also good for their behavioral health, too. Um, I have horses that I've, and there's always, you know, exceptions to the rule, but I know a lot of horses that if you give them a small hole hay net and give them hay loose on the floor, they will choose to eat out of a hay net. Um, and I just wonder, when you watch, I have a video um, that I took of a horse eating out of a slow feed hay net, and they end up using their lips and their muzzle to kind of work the hay out of the net and into their mouth. And if you've ever watched a horse eating grass pasture, they do the same thing. They're using their lips and they're moving that blade of grass into their mouth with their lips. Um, when they eat a flake of hay, they're not really doing that, right? They're just going to open their mouth and shove their mouth in the flake of hay, and there's not a lot of that lip movement going on. And so I wonder whether that isn't, and this is completely anthropomorphic and perhaps not very scientific, but I wonder whether it isn't kind of relaxing to them to kind of have to use their lips and kind of work the, the hay into their mouth in a more natural fashion. Um, the caller does raise a good point, though, the concern of, you know, their feet getting caught in the nets. Um, obviously, these nets have very small holes, um, and um, so if your horse is barefoot, it's not too much of a concern, but um, if your horse is a shod, there is the risk that they could catch the heel of the shoe in the net. Um, so there's a couple of things you can do. Um, you can hang them 
and put them kind of inside one of those big black plastic water tub type things so that the net is hanging low, but there's now a vertical barrier, if that makes sense, kind of around the base of the net so that the horse can't get his feet within about 18 inches of the net and would have to pick his foot up about you know, 18 inches to get anywhere near the net. Um, so unless he tries really hard, he's not going to get tangled up in the net. Um, I have clients who tie their nets in the bottom of, you know, corner. They have, like, the corner of their stall is kind of partitioned off where they would normally drop the hay in there and it would fall down to almost ground level. They've set it up so they can actually put nets in and kind of snap them in so the horse can't get them out. Um, out here in California, we have a lot of what we call ag bins, which are used for, you know, putting vegetables and nuts and grapes and things in, and those make great hay feeders. They're very hard plastic, and you can put, you know, you can put a bale in there and then cover it with netting, um, and that works really well. There are several slow feeders. There's one that looks like a water trough that has a slotting mechanism that slides across the top. Um, there's a barrel kind that, um, a plastic barrel that you can put them in and it'll roll around the floor and kind of keep them busy. Some of those, I find the slot feeders and the barrel-type ones don't slow them down quite as much because um, the holes are pretty big. Um, but in that case, you can really sort of baffle them by putting it in a net and then putting it in the barrel. <laughs> that will definitely slow them down. Okay, so definitely some options there uh, for, yeah. for slow feeding our horses. Our next question is from uh, Maria Lena in Budapest, Hungary. And she says she has a 16-year-old gelding who is currently spending his days grazing in a field, having no more than one day of mild exercise a week. As a show jumper, he would always have a good share of oats two or three times a day, which is still the case today, although we have reduced the quantity significantly, he still is putting on weight. What would you suggest for slowly eliminating the oats from his diet? Yeah, this is a really, you know, this question really speaks to the need to, you know, feed based on our horse's body condition and to be good about, you know, keeping an eye on their condition. So um, kudos to Marilena for, you know, realizing that her horse is gaining weight and, and doing something about it. Um, I would definitely cut the oats out um, first. I would want, you know, you obviously want to have them, because of all the reasons I said in the last question about needing them to keep eating for as long as possible and the importance of forage in their diet, for, you know, cutting back forage is always the last thing I do. Um, so if there's a grain like oats in the diet, I'm going to take that out first. Um, so yes, I would definitely eliminate the oats. Um, and then, as mentioned previously, you're still going to need to find some way to uh, supplement the, the, you know, the minerals you're needing. If you're on pasture, though, you should, it's good quality. You should have adequate vitamin E and adequate omega-3s in that pasture, so that won't be a concern. Um, and I would just add that it's worth, you know, keeping in mind that as the seasons change, um, you know, in the summer right now, maybe he doesn't need those, the extra calories from those oats. Um, as the season changes, she may find that actually he starts to lose a little bit too much weight and go the other way and need extra calories. Um, and my first choice in that situation would always be to increase the forage if that's possible. Um, and uh, otherwise, and if forage alone isn't adequate, then yes, finding an additional source of calories from a more calorie-dense source, you know, like oats or some other grain uh, would be the way to go. Our next question is from Karen in New York. And Karen wants to know if her horse can eat 
red clover hay as their her horses can eat red clover hay as their sole forage over the winter without digestive or other upsets. She said that she's read that too much of it is not good for them. Her horses also get a senior feed, and the youngest is supplemented with a sweet feed. What recommendations do you have for uh, Karen in feeding her horses red clover hay? Yeah, red clover hay is you know generally considered to be a safe forage. Uh, horses, it kind of falls into the class of legumes, kind of similar to alfalfa. Um, so like alfalfa, it's going to be higher protein than your average grass hay. Um, it's probably going to be higher in calories than your average grass hay, and also the calcium content also tends to be higher than you would find in a grass hay. Um, so I don't know how young her youngest horse is. Um, obviously, you want more calcium in your ration than phosphorus. Typically, you want about one and a half to two times more calcium than phosphorus. That's true for all horses. Um, and that's particularly important for growing horses. So um, adding a little you know, legume like clover or alfalfa is a nice way of getting that, ensuring that there's enough calcium in the diet. However, I do find that diets that are very high in legumes, um, depending on the legume, can have very high calcium phosphorus. So, for example, out here in California, um, I saw an alfalfa yesterday. In fact, an analysis sheet for an alfalfa, the calcium phosphorus ratio is 7 to 1. Um, and while we have uh, data in mature horses feeding the 6 to 1 calcium phosphorus ratio, and it didn't really appear to have any negative effect, um, I was a little bit concerned about feeding you know, very high calcium phosphorus ratios to growing horses. I prefer to keep it closer to the ideal of 1.5 to 2 to 1. So I don't know how young her young, youngster is, um, you know, so it's hard to kind of know. Um, but that, you know, feeding a straight legume diet there. If, if it is high in calcium, particularly high in calcium, might be something she wants to think about. Um, you know, clover, like other types of hay, um, it can be it can be high in sugar, depending on you know what stage it was at when it was cut. Um, so that's something else to think about if uh, if she has any horses that have problems with that. Um, I have an interesting story actually about clover. Recently, um, I have a client I've worked with for a long time. Um, and she is religious about weighing her horse on a frequent basis, and she's been doing it for years. It's great. So she knows what his, you know, good weight for him is, and she actually um, keeps him in Illinois in the summer and in Arizona in the winter, and she moved back to Illinois this summer, and he's a driving pony, and um, she stops driving him. He's getting older, and he doesn't enjoy driving as much as he used to, and so he's not doing quite as much work this summer, and um, he's gained some weight. And I thought it was probably because he's not working as hard, but um, with a little bit of deduction on her part, going out and looking at her pastures, she realized that her pastures have become quite high in clover, and she wondered whether this was actually causing his weight problem because it is, you know, higher in calories than the grasses that were growing in her pasture. So she sprayed her pasture for, you know, broadleaf plants and got rid of a lot of the clover, and without changing anything else in his diet, without increasing his weight, sure enough, he's dropped weight and he's gone back down to his normal weight. So um, just sort of a, you know, it was an interesting note that clover mm-hmm. certainly can be higher, you know, higher in calories than grass. Yeah. So um, she, took, she, be- took, she took the candy out of his pasture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet he was sad. Certainly, yeah, and certainly in pasture, you know, there's some odd things with clover, some, some clovers in a pasture setting because there are some molds that can occur in clovers that are kind of unusual. Um, a lot of people have heard of, like, horses that start slobbering a lot when they eat clover pasture, and that's because of a mold that can develop um, 
and it tends to occur when the temperature is over 80 degrees and the humidity is over 60, and it's a rust-colored mold, and it occurs kind of occurs on the top of the leaves, and there's a chemical in it called, uh, that um, basically causes excessive slobbering. It doesn't really, there's no real detriment to the horse, but it, it, they, they sliver a lot. And then there's another, um, perhaps more important mold, which is a black splotchy mold that can occur on the undersides of the leaves on clover, and that mold can actually lead to, to liver damage. So that actually, and, and you, sometimes you don't know the horse has liver damage until you end up with photosensitization and sunburn on the muzzle. Um, in light-colored horses, um, and that can be an indicator that you've got some liver damage going on. So it's worth keeping an eye on clover in pastures. It's perfectly fine to have in pastures, um, but just being aware that you know there, there are, can be these mold issues in certain environmental conditions is, is worth knowing. Okay. Our next question is from our live audience. Uh, Lois in Florida wants to know if you can compare beet pulp and rice bran and explain what to use when for our horses. Beet pulp and rice bran, yeah, those are very popular. Um, so beet pulp is um, often referred to as a superfiber. <laughs> the other superfiber is soybean hull. And they're called superfibers because they are easily, they're, they're, the carbohydrates that are in them are complex carbohydrates that require fermentation in the hind gut like hay, but they're more easily fermented than the uh, carbohydrates in hay, and they yield uh, more calories per pound. So... A pound of sugar beet pulp uh, has about 1.3 megacalories per pound, um, which is not that dissimilar to oats, which runs more like about 1.4, whereas an average grass hay is about 1.8, an alfalfa, you know, 1.8, well, 1.8 to 1, depending on the quality, and alfalfa is normally about 1-ish megacalories per pound. So you can see that beet pulp is fermented in the hindgut and yet yields more calories than hay. So it's a great choice, great way to get more calories into a horse kind of in a safe way um, from a fiber source. Um, beet pulp uh, has a slightly higher calcium content than some other things we tend to add to horses' rations. Most of our grains, our oats, corn, barley, um, rice bran, they have more phosphorus in them than calcium, um, whereas beet pulp, has a you know good calcium phosphorus ratio with the calcium being higher. Um, beet pulp. People get worried about beet pulp because it's called sugar beet pulp, and so they think it's really high in sugar. But they don't want us to have any of the sugar that's in beet pulp. The reason beet pulp is grown is that the sugar industry extracts the sugar for other purposes, and the beet pulp is what's left over afterwards at the end. And so it's very low in sugar, which actually makes it safe to feed horses that are insulin resistant. So it's a really good choice. For horses suffering from metabolic problems who need a low starch and sugar diet like those with insulin resistance, Cushing disease, polysaccharide storage myopathy. Um, some companies do add a little molasses to beet pulp because it can be kind of dusty and pretty grim looking after it's been processed. And so they add a little molasses to cheer it up and make it look better so that we'll be happier buying it. And that then isn't appropriate for a horse that has metabolic problems. Although you can uh, rinse it and wash the sugar off because it's kind of on the outside of the coating. Um, but generally speaking, it's, it has, it's a low glycemic index feed, very safe feed for feeding uh, to horses that are insulin resistant. It makes it a good choice for horses with Cushing's that maybe have a hard time holding their weight if they're older senior horses. Um, you don't have to worry about the, the sort of starch and sugar content. Rice bran um, is a very different feed. Rice bran... Um, 
like other brands, like wheat bran, as I mentioned, has an inverted calcium-phosphorus ratio, so it has more phosphorus than calcium. Now, that concerned a lot of people um, years ago because if you feed, if you end up feeding a ration that has to, more phosphorus than calcium, you can end up with some, um, you know, bone metabolism problems. And there's a condition called big head where horses get sort of a bony growth on their jawbone that can result from eating diets that have uh, higher phosphorus than calcium. And so I think that because of that, people got a little freaked out by the brands and moved away from feeding brands. Um, and also, as a result of that, perhaps uh, the industry started adding calcium carbonate to rice bran, so that most rice brands these days do have added calcium carbonate and, as a result, have a one-to-one calcium-phosphorus ratio. So it's kind of canceled out the phosphorus. They so don't have to worry about it. Um, so it's worth looking, though, because there are rice brands out there that don't have added calcium phosphorus, I mean, added uh, calcium carbonate, sorry. But it's worth looking at the label and the ingredients to see... Um, you know, what kind you're picking up. Um, it's a higher fat, uh, higher uh, diet of feed. Certainly a good way of getting some extra calories from, um, from fat into them. And um, it's also moderately high in starch. Not terribly high, but um, maybe too high for some horses that have sensitivities to that. So, um I don't tend to, and typically, you know, you don't feed more than um, the one or two pounds of it a day. Um, I do know some horses that have uh, the polysaccharide storage myopathy and are trying to get more fat in the diet and they're feeding um, a lot more. Um, but typically, um, that can actually cause a problem for them in the long run because in order to get enough fat into them, you're also getting a fair amount of, um, of starch into them. So rice brand's about 15% fat um, and it's, about that or a little higher in starch as well. We have two questions that have come in from the live audience, and they're similar. Uh, one is from Susan in Florida, and the other is from Darla in Canada. And they both want to know what recommendations you have for feeding a hot or spooky horse. Is there anything that we can give them that won't give them that extra energy that it sometimes seems like they get after they get their uh, grain or feed? Yeah, um I mean, it's, it's always, uh, you know, what causes the hot horse and lots of people have all kinds of theories about what makes a horse hot. And I think sometimes it depends on the individual horse. Um, obviously, the first thing to do is make sure they're actually just not feeding too many calories for the horse and what it does for a living. Um, so, again, condition scoring the horse and making sure that it's, um, you know, not overweight and that you're not overfeeding it for the work that it's doing and that you picked, if you're feeding a commercial feed, if you picked a feed that's appropriate for the type of work it's doing, um, that's, you know, important because certainly just, you know, feeding too much energy results in a horse with too much energy. Um, so um, some people do feel that, um, you know, high-protein feeds make their horses hot. I mean, there's not really any reason why high-protein diet should make a horse hot except for... They also tend to sometimes, you know, it does result in more calories. So, again, it kind of comes back to the calories thing. Um, your traditional grains or feeds higher in starches and sugars are going to result in, um, you know, glucose being absorbed into the bloodstream. And so that's a little bit like you eating candy in a way and, and kind of resulting in a spike in blood glucose, which can, you know, give you that energy that you feel great. And then half an hour later, you feel terrible. <laughs> but... Um, so there's certainly, you know, the potential for that. So cutting out um, high-starch feeds is a good idea. 
And then, you know, looking at your forage too, um, you know, could you, could you perhaps feed, are you feeding a really high quality forage? Um, could you perhaps, you know, feed something that's a little lower calorie in your, in your hay that might, um, again, mean you could put more hay in front of that horse for longer. Um, utilizing fat, there's actually been a, there was a study recently uh, using fat for energy sources um, was linked to uh, horses that appeared to have slightly better behavior um, than those that were using other you know, sources of energy. So certainly relying more on um, the higher fat, um, higher fat diets. Um, if you do need more calories, is probably the way to go. Doing that beet pulp rice bran or um, you know, a higher fat uh, commercial feed is a better choice than a feed that's got a lot of you know, traditional local grains and uh, molasses. We have a question that is along the same lines of Darla and Suzanne's question, and it's from Marianne in Vista, California. She wants to know how important is magnesium and what is the best way to give it as a supplement for a nervous or alert horse? Yeah, magnesium is um, very popular right now um, as a calming agent. Um, magnesium, you know, this is a bit of background about magnesium. It's a macro mineral, which means that it's required in gram quantities by the horse. Um, interestingly, um, there's a lot of magnesium in bone. So about 60% of the horse's magnesium is stored in bone, and the other 30% is stored in muscle. So it's very important for bone metabolism, and it's also necessary in sort of muscle contraction process. Um, perhaps where the interest in it, and that's part of the interest in it as a relaxant because it's, people believe that um, because of its role in muscle contraction, that by increasing the amount of magnesium in the diet, it might help with muscle relaxation and get rid of some muscle tension. And certainly if you have horses that seem to suffer from muscle spasms, that might be an indicator that there's not enough magnesium in the diet or that the magnesium is not well balanced with other minerals that's resulting in a deficiency. Historically, magnesium sulfate was used uh, as part of an anesthetic um, for horses. It's also been in, in humans, there's a lot of human research looking at um, fibromyalgia patients and the use of magnesium there for sort of excitability and nerve function. Um, low magnesium in people has been linked to high noradrenaline levels, so that's the flight or fight hormone. Um, so I think there's a lot of data perhaps in the human world that's also causing this interest in the, in the horse world. Is the, can we use it to calm, um, calm horses? Um, certainly in my conversations with some of the veterinarians that, um, my, that I know at UC Davis, they've certainly seen blood panels run on horses that have shown low magnesium, so it's certainly possible that there are horses out there that do actually have um, low magnesium status, and so they would benefit from some additional magnesium. Um, I will say that, you know, before using any calming agent, I'm a really strong advocate for making sure that we know, you know, we ruled out causes of nervousness, you know. Is, there, is the horse in any pain for any reason? Does the tack fit properly? Does it have an undiagnosed lameness issue? You know, what, is there some reason why this horse is on edge that we haven't ruled out? And I encourage all my clients to, you know, have their nervous horses evaluated by a vet to make sure that we're, you know, we're not missing anything that could be causing that horse to not want to be worked um, or be relaxed under saddle. Um, and then it comes down to different types of magnesium. If you decide you want to try adding, you know, magnesium to the diet, um, it comes in different types. There are the 
inorganic sources and organic sources. So organic sources of magnesium, it just means that it's there's, cal there's cal um, carbon um, in the compound. So, for example, that would be like mag magnesium citrate, malate, lactate, uh, all organic sources of, uh, of uh, magnesium. And then there's sort of inorganic ones, uh, magnesium sulfate and magnesium oxide. And it's the sulfate and oxide forms that are typically added to feed um, because they're the cheapest. And, you know, going back to the absorption, um, it's actually pretty absorbable. So the common sources of sulfate and oxide forms are about, um, uh, you know, are about 70% absorbable. Oxide is about 70% absorbable, so it's pretty absorbable. Um, typically, organic forms are thought to be more absorbable. So there are supplements out there that have some of these organic sources in, and they've become very popular because they're thought to be uh, more absorbable. My only caution there is that you actually look and see how much magnesium is it actually delivering. So, for example, there's one product that I looked at recently that, um, you know, has about a 10-gram serving size, but it only delivers um, about one and a half grams of magnesium in that serving, whereas if you were to give a 10-gram serving size of magnesium oxide, which is about 50%, 60%, magnesium, you'd be getting five grams of magnesium. Um, and even if the organic is more absorbable, um, I think you're probably still get, you could potentially still get more absorption out of your inorganic. So some of the better calming magnesium products actually have a mix, and they do a mix of you know, magnesium oxide and magne magnesium citrate um, to kind of maximize that absorption uh, possibility. Um, as far as dose, um, I would start off with, you know, if you want to try it, try sort of something that provides about five grams a day of extra magnesium and start there. And um, and you could go up to sort of 10 grams a day. I wouldn't really go over that. You'll know, I mean, one way you'll know if you've given too much is that it is a laxative. So um, it will cause loose manure if you get too carried away. So um, I think if you're not seeing any benefit by the time you get to 10 grams, you're probably not going to see any benefit, to be honest. Okay. Now, I have one of these nervous horses. He's my quarter horse, and he is just a, ner a nervous, tends to be kind of spooky horse, and, and I've done a lot of management things to make him a little bit more relaxed, and one of them was mm -hmm. including um, a supplement uh, to help him relax a bit. How long should it take for that to start working? How soon should we see a change? If we're going to see it. Yeah, I don't know that we, you know, there's so little research out there on these various products that I don't, I don't know that we really, I can't say there's really any hard data, to be honest, but I, I would think, I mean, this is just sort of a gut sense of mine, um, more than anything else, I would think you would start to see an effect, you know, I'd hope you'd start to see an effect within sort of a week. Um, I mean, there are definitely products out there that claim you can give them in the morning of a competition and you'll see a difference by the time you go in the ring and you know, give them two, two hours before you compete and they, um, you know, they have an effect. So I, I think it should be fairly, it shouldn't take that long. Okay. Our next question is from our live audience and it's Sue in Pennsylvania and she wants to know if the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids is as important as horses as it seems to be in people. That's a great question, and it's an area of current research, and I don't know that we don't really know. We don't know what the ideal ratio is. We know that uh, horses grazing pasture are consuming more omega-3s than omega-6s just because most grass species um, 
the majority of the omegas in grass are omega-3s. And we know that horses that are eating hay and not getting as much omega fatty acids, either threes or sixes, just because they're not very heat stable. And that most of our supplemental fat sources, so whether it's vegetable oil in a commercial supplement, whether it's rice bran, whether it's oil you're pouring on your horse's feed, are providing um, omega-6 fatty acids. And so uh, the majority, it's fairly safe to say that probably the majority of horses today that are um, being fed supplemental fat sources are or have diets that have higher omega-6 and omega-3 and that that's not as it would be in their natural setting. What effect that has on, you know, performance and health, we're still figuring out. Um, there's certainly data that shows that the um, relative amount of omega-3s and 6s in the diet does seem to have an effect on sort of inflammatory markers that people have studied in blood. So I think we're going to find that it actually, you know, does have an important effect on um, inflammation in the body. Um, and so I, I definitely recommend that people feed a source of omega-3s and the cheapest and most available plant-based source of omega-3s is flax. Um, and so uh, a lot of my clients feed flax um, every day as a source of omega-3s and they feed about a cup of flax, which is equivalent. Here, there's a volumetric measure for you. <laughs> a cup of flax, which actually ends up being about four ounces. Um, okay. I think it's worth noting that um, if you have a horse that suffers from inflammatory conditions, uh, it might be worth kind of going with the big guns in the omega-3 world and going with fish oil or um, an algal uh, source of omega-3s. And the reason for that is that the source of omega-3 that you find in plant-based uh, sources, um, which is linolenic acid, has to be converted to... EPA and DHA, and I'll try and wrap my tongue around what EPA, EPA stands for, it costs a pentanoic acid, which is why we just call it EPA, <laughs> <laughs> and DHA stands for decosahexanoic acid, which again, is why we call it DHA, because it's much easier. Um, and the enzyme that is involved in converting the linolenic acid to the EPA um, is shared with, it also, that same enzyme also converts omega-6 fatty acids down their conversion pathway. So the question is, how much actually gets convert? how good are horses at converting linolenic acid to EPA? Now, common sense says, at least my common sense says, they must be able to convert it because in their natural setting, they're getting it in the plant form, they're eating it in the linolenic acid form. You know, the big thing I always hear is, well, horses don't eat fish, and that's true, they don't. Um, they eat plants. So they must be able to convert it. How well do they convert it in the face of a diet that got a lot of omega-6s in it, that we don't know. So when you, when you supplement fish oil, you're giving EPA and DHA directly, and you're cutting out the need for that conversion step. And so while the majority of my clients who have healthy horses and you know, don't seem to have any you know, inflammation issues, we, we just feed them flax. For those horses that are suffering from inflammatory conditions um, like, um, my brain's going dead, <laughs> arthritis, um, arthritis is a big one, um, they feed fish oil and they, they do sometimes see a benefit of that. And there is a little bit of data, there is a little bit of data out there in osteoarthritis to support giving fish oil to those horses and horses that there's also some data showing that um, these omega-3s are important for horses that suffer from bleeding in the lungs and also in horses that suffer from insulin resistance, it seems to help stabilize um, insulin levels. 
Okay. Well, thank you. I think that's the best explanation I've heard of the differences between the fish oil or the fish-based uh, omega-3s and the, the plant-based. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, we, have a, we have two questions that are on opposite ends of the spectrum that I'm going to throw together for us as we get close to the end of our, our hour. We have Marianne in Vista, California. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the, the wrong person. Um, we have Cindy in Wisconsin who has a large draft horse. And then okay. we have Darlene in North Carolina who has a dwarf mini. And both <laughs> of them want to know how, what is the right way to feed their horses that are on these ends of the very broad spectrum. Do they follow the, the guidelines that we have for, for a normal horse or are there special considerations for those big guys and those little guys? That's a great question. Wow. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, a lot of these... <laughs> I'm going to stretch you in, this, in our last 10 minutes here. <laughs> I, have some, um, I have some mini clients, so I'm kind of... Uh, I'm definitely familiar with feeding uh, both mini horses and I've got some mini donkeys on my books as well. And uh, when you've just been to a regular horse farm and you walk and do minis, you're like, whoa, wow, you're only feeding four pounds of hay. Okay, yep, okay, that's normal. Uh, <laughs> so it's wrap your head around. But, um, yes, as to their requirements, most of the NRC requirements actually scale with body weight. So um, you can scale the requirements based on the body weight of the horse. So, for example, let's say um, the calcium requirement for a horse at rest is 0 0.04 times their body weight in kilograms. So, you know, if you've got a 1,000-pound horse, that's going to be 18 grams of calcium a day, and a 2,000-pound horse is going to be 36 grams of calcium a day, and a 250-pound mini, it's going to be, you know, proportionally less again. Um, that's, you know, having said all that, um, you know, most of our research is done in light breeds of horses. So it's done in your thoroughbreds and your, you know, school horses and the like, and it's not done in drafts and it's not done in minis. So, you know, do these horses actually have the same requirement? I, I don't know that we know that. I know that, you know, there's, there's work being done on that. Um, as, you know, the feed company that's come out with a, um, you know, a diet, they're doing some research in minis, and I think Karina has done some work um, creating a diet for minis. Kentucky Equine Research has actually got um, an interesting weight calculation equation for minis because they found that that traditional girth length height equation um, that we've all used, the Carol and Huntington equation, um, doesn't work as well for minis, and so they actually did some work on minis, coming up with an equation specific to minis. So I would encourage mini owners to kind of check that out if you're trying to, you know, figure out what your mini actually weighs. Um, so I think over time we may find that their needs are a little different. Um, but for now, their requirements do tend to scale by weight. Um, interestingly enough, both, and both the drafts and the minis tend to be fairly easy keepers, but it's interesting that they're so different in body weight and so similar in that regard, and I tend to think of them as both as being fairly easy keepers. Um, and so, you know, while they may not need as many calories to maintain themselves, the trick is, is maintaining their body condition by, you know, reducing the calories but not reducing all the other nutrients they need. I, I, I think probably, no, ma no matter the breed, if you have an easy keeper, one of the things I tend to run into 
is people are reducing the total, total amount of feed they're feeding in an attempt to keep the weight down, which they need to do. And at the same time, they don't realize that they're actually starving them of other essential nutrients because not only are they removing calories from the diet, they're also removing minerals and vitamins from the diet. So the trick with the easy keepers, be they minis or drafts or anything in between, is to how do you restrict the calories and maintain the other essential nutrients. And that's where your good quality, you know, broad spectrum vitamin and mineral supplements come in or your ration balancing feeds come in. Um, and then scaling them. You know, a lot of the feed companies don't have, on you know, go to their websites and you look at their feeding recommendations for their feed. You know, they start at like maybe 900 pounds and they go to maybe 1,500 pounds. And they don't have feeding direction for your mini or your draft. And so you kind of have to scale back. So, you know, the... Um, you know, kind of going back to that, um, the research I was mentioning that was done on minis, they found that, I think they looked at about 50 minis, and they found that on average they weighed about 210 pounds, and only 15% of them weighed 250 pounds. And so um, when you take that into account, you can then kind of scale up and say, okay, well, that's about a quarter of, you know, the requirement for the 1,100 pound that is in the feed chart, and you can kind of scale accordingly. Um, and you have to remember that just like every other horse, they need to be consuming at least 1% to 1.5% of their body weight per day as forage um, in order to maintain gut health. And I think that with the minis in particular, that's really tricky because 1.5% of body weight, you know, that might be 3 or 4 pounds, and it's hardly anything. And, you know, I think if you've got your minis and you only have minis, it's not that difficult. But I know that... Um, it's difficult for people that keep minis in boarding situations um, around other horses because people that own other horses don't appreciate how little these horses actually need, but for them, it's a lot of food. And, you know, the temptation is to, you know, hand them things over the stall door because, gosh, this poor horse isn't being fed anything. It's only getting, you know, half a flake a day. <laughs> I, I <laughs> that's the right, you know. I'm thinking my feed bill would go down a lot if I had minis instead of... <laughs> Three full-size horses. <laughs> yeah, and they do everything that the big horses do. Have you ever seen the mini, like the mini world championship? Those yeah. guys are amazing. They jump three feet. They go in harness. Yeah, get a mini yeah. and save money on your feed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, we're going to do one last question. We just have a couple minutes left. Um, but we had several questions about biotin and hoof health and how to improve our horses' hoof health. Um, and also their coat health because that can be related to their hoof health. What recommendations do you have? And I'll really quickly read um, some of these questions, the names who, of the people who sent them in. We have Samantha in California. We had Chris in California. And we had Bree in Ireland all sending questions asking about biotin. What are your recommendations? For biotin, yeah, biotin is a very common go-to when you've got health problems, especially if you have shelly feet. Um, and the data is kind of mixed. There are some studies. I mean, there was um, a study that fed 20 grams of biotin over 19 months, um, and they did see a small but significant improvement in horn quality, and that quality was maintained for two and a half years when they you know, kept feeding it. Um, however, it should be noted that the, the rest of the diet wasn't really ideally balanced as far as the other minerals, so maybe if the diet had been better balanced, they might have seen the same results. Who knows? Um, there are other studies where hoof growth was shown to you know, be improved, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a study where, you know, they showed improvement and then when they took it away, you know, the hooves, you know, didn't improve as much. Um, and then there are studies where it hasn't really done very much at all. 
So it's a little bit hit or miss. Part of the issue is it really depends on what the problem is with the hoof. Biotin isn't going to fix all problems, so it depends, um, you know, what the problem, what the problem in the hoof actually is. Um, technically, we don't really have a requirement. You know, there's no dietary requirement for biotin because horses make biotin thanks to the bacteria in their hindgut, who actually make the full complement of B vitamins. So um, a horse that has a healthy hindgut and active bacterial population is producing all the B vitamins it needs. But you know, there has a say there is a little bit of data showing that um, supplementing some horses does help. Um, but the reason it helps is it's involved in fatty acid synthesis and also sort of proliferation of cells and growth. Um, so that's why it helps. I will add though, it's not a quick fix. I mean, you know, you're not going to see perhaps any real benefits. I think some of the data was the nine to twelve months. So you're in it for the long haul if you try it. Um, and that's a long time to wait for your horse's feet to get better. <laughs> so, you know, what else can you do? Um, there are definitely other nutrients that are important to hoof health that you can, you know, fix and probably have an impact much more quickly. So the key things are uh, zinc, uh, because zinc's important for um of tissue. Um, zinc's necessary for, like, repair of tissues. It's necessary for collagen synthesis and also for keratin production. Uh, copper is important for uh, connective tissue uh, elasticity, and it's also involved in the enzymes that make the disulfide bonds in the hoof horn. Uh, and so that that affects what we call the cornified cells, or the out, the outer hoof wall, the kind of the, the hard cells. And then methionine is an amino acid that's important for hoof health because it's a sulfur amino acid, and it provides a source of sulfur that are also important for those disulfide bridges. So when you look at a hoof supplement, guess what's in it? Methionine, zinc, copper, sometimes some lecithin, which is a fatty acid, and fatty acids help with pliability of the hoof wall. They help it kind of expand and then shrink again without cracking. Um, so those things tend to be in a hoof supplement. Now, do I recommend hoof supplements? Uh, sometimes. My first thing, though, is always let's get the base diet balanced. Because if you remember back to the beginning, when I said you know, there are some nutrients that are not perhaps going to be provided in great enough quantities by your hay, what do they happen to be? Zinc, copper. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you balance your ration and you make sure that your whole ration is meeting the horse's needs, you may not need a hoof supplement. You may have bad feet because your whole ration is not balanced. And by balancing the ration and meeting all of those requirements, the hooves will then take care of themselves. Now, if your diet is balanced and you've done all that and you still have hoof problems, then yes, maybe your horse needs a little bit of extra support. Are you going to make a horse have fabulous feet because you feed it a hoof supplement? If it genetically is not supposed to have great feet, then no. But you can certainly help support that horse have the best feet that they're genetically capable of having, if that makes sense. Um, and as far as biotin and as far as you know, how much... Um, the data seems to suggest that you're looking at about three to four grams per hundred kilograms of body weight. So for us in so for us in America who are working on a pound basis, you know, eleven hundred pound horse, you're looking at about at least twenty grams, you know, fifteen, twenty grams a day. Um, and that's what most of your better hoof supplements are gonna provide. Okay. So it's just like biotin wouldn't make me have a thick head of curly hair it's not going to necessarily make my horse who has weak shelly hooves have nice thick healthy hooves it, it, I mean it might you know it might it depends on exactly what you know exactly what the cause of the shelliness in the hoof is and it depends you know if 
you know, it, 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 might, it might, certainly might. Definitely there are people that feed biotin and see a positive benefit, but it's not going to be um, necessarily a really quick fix. I will say that, you know, you mentioned hair, because obviously hair coat and hoof is, is whole keratin. So um, certainly people feed biotin and they do feel that they see their horses' um, coats get better and their tails thickening up and that kind of thing. But I also see that when horses have their diets balanced and their mineral requirements met. Um, you'll also see that the um, the, coat, the coat tends to blossom and the, and the mane and tail will thicken out too. Okay. Well, so it's all a balanced system. It all has to be there. It's not. There's not one magic bullet. <laughs> oh, we are unfortunately out of time. But it's been a great, a great conversation, Doctor Tunis. Um, I want to thank everyone who sent in questions ahead of time. Everyone who listened live. Uh, Go to thehorse.com if you're looking for more nutrition information. We have a lot there. And again, we have that nutrition newsletter that goes out every week if you want to sign up for it. So thanks again, uh, Dr. Tunis. She's with uh, Summit Consulting. Is that the? Summit Equine Nutrition, yeah. New East, and, um, and we hope that everyone can join us next month for our next Ask the Vet Live. Thank you so much for having me this evening. And thanks for everyone being on the call. It's been fun.